So we are here now in part number nine of our study of the book of Philippians. And as I hinted at just a moment ago, we are kind of making a methodical sort of pace through this letter, going to each verse, and I hope to uh, extract much of what the, what the Apostle Paul has for us here in this letter. Uh, there's much to digest here as Paul is writing to this church. As we've uh, everywhere noted, he's writing to a church that was very dear to him. It's not a church that had uh, a lot of problems. It's not a church that had a lot of predicaments that Paul had to insert himself into in order to correct, in order to sort of bring up from some very false or erroneous uh, sort of pathway. He is here encouraging them in the love that they can have in Jesus Christ and the joy that they can experience in Jesus Christ. In that sense, as we've said, uh, Philippians is a very pastoral letter. Uh, often we think of the pastorals as First and Second Timothy and Titus. And yes, that's true. It's written to pastors. But here is a letter of a pastor to a church, a fellow, uh, a church made up of fellow saints in Jesus Christ, we might say. So in that sense, it's a letter that is so, I would say, encouraging and enriching and enthusiastically pointing us towards the joy we can have in Jesus. Uh, as we've entered chapter 2, we've spent a lot of time highlighting, and we will throughout the end of these 30 verses, which make up chapter 2, highlighting Paul's main thrust of this particular segment of the letter, which is this humility that we see on display. It's the humility he calls for in verses 1 through 4, which we said was uh, the, uh, the, the, the humility that we ought to embody as uh, saints in the Lord Jesus Christ, as those who are a part of his church. We said uh, in the last couple of weeks that those who are Christ nowhere better identify themselves as Christ's sons and daughters than when they live in united humility, such as why he says there in chapter 2, verse 2, Fulfill ye my joy, Paul says. That ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. This life of joy that's found in Christ is here brought to bear by Christ himself. So we said the life of joy, as Paul was making his main thrust in chapter 1, is here said to be a life of humility. And that humility is best exampled, we might say, best sort of embodied by no one other than Jesus Christ. That's where we get verses 5 through 8, where we see exactly what this humility of Jesus looked like. He, yes, being God, yet was found in fashion as a man, as it says, and humbled himself and became obedient unto your death and mine. You want to talk about exampling what it really means to be humble. And what do we know that it means to be humble? As Paul says to us in verse 4, humility really means looking on others and esteeming their needs as more important than your own. That's what he says. Verse 4, look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Who best epitomizes this other than Jesus Christ? 
who literally looks on the things of others, on the things of the whole world full of sinners and considers their plights as one that he can bear, as one that he can shoulder. And such is what he has done through his life, death, and resurrection. He's embodied the humility that he calls us also to live by, and such is our gospel. So we now proceed along with the Apostle Paul to follow this train of thought. That, yes, the humility that we are called to live in verses 1 through 4 is given to us in the person of Jesus. Knowing also, too, that this humility is God's sort of scheme, his sort of plan all along as we see here that this humility is now exalted. If you're following us along here, this is in verses 9 through 11, and this particular section is entitled The Exaltation of Humility. These are likely familiar verses, verses 9 through 11, which talk about this name that's above every name, this name at which every knee will bow. The familiar verses out of this very familiar passage, and I think they're familiar specifically for this image that they often put in our mind's eye. I think when I read these verses, I have this image in my brain just about the, 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 the image of every person bowing at Jesus' feet at the end of days. And that's a true image. That's a, a very good image to have in view. But if you think about that particular image in context of what Paul is trying to say here, what does, it, what does that image, every knee bowing to Jesus at the end of all things, what does that have to do with this life of joyful humility that he has just said embodied Christ's life? And even more, how does that image pertain to this example of joy that we Christians are meant to find in Jesus? How does this relate to us, this exaltation of humility here? Well, I think that's exactly what Paul wants to bring to our attention. And I want you to notice, just as we see here in this, this, this exaltation of humility, I think is brought to bear in a couple of things. And we're just going to walk through these verses and highlighting them as we go. Because there's a very profound comparison, juxtaposition, uh, dichotomy, if you will, that is brought to bear in verses 8 and 9. That I want you to notice and just think about, sit in and ponder. Because notice those words. In verse 8, Paul is talking about Jesus' obedient death. He says, in being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And then, no sooner than he has talked about death and crucifixion, he goes and says, God also hath highly exalted him. You have this dichotomy between death and exaltation here sandwiched together. Now to us uh, Christians in the West perhaps, Christians in 2021, we are not likely as stunned or stirred by those words being so close together as we should be. <laughs> but you have to uh, put on your thinking caps, if you will. Put on your, your time traveling caps, if you can. And go back into the first century. Because these words put that close together are very scandalous. 
It's a, it's a very scandalizing, offending thought to this idea of God dying, and specifically God dying via crucifixion, and yet also having this thought in mind coming right up after it, that this one who died via crucifixion is also exalted onto the right hand of the Heavenly Father. Of course, you've likely heard, but just to get back into your, into your head and into your thoughts, the cross... The, the actual form of crucifixion that the Romans employed was a form of execution that was reserved for the worst of the worst. It wasn't just like Joe Schmo getting crucified every day. It was people who were uh, very, very malignant, very vindictive, also ones that they were seeking to make examples of. If it, the, this form of execution was reserved for those like, if we put him out on the street, it's a public show of Roman authority, Roman dominance, Roman vindictiveness, and now we can make sure that everyone knows, look at what's going to happen if you try to uprise against us, if you try to thwart our authority. So when some Roman governor or, or potentate wants to sort of make a show of just how much power he has, to make a show of just what type of authority he can, that he can dole out because of his sway over his particular region, he would schedule a crucifixion, reminding those under his dominion, look at how powerful I am. And this would look very well on his Roman report card. He would send his report card back to Rome and say, look at all the people I crucified. Oh, you're good. We'll promote you. You see, it's good for Roman business. It's good for Roman governor's business that they were able to squash sort of revolts and troublemakers. And they would stop them in their tracks. And it would also put everyone else in their place. It's a, they, they, would put them, they would put these crosses in the public way so that you would have to go buy them. You would have to see them. You would have to have your eyes gaze upon them, reminding you again of Roman dominance. And now, through the apostles, you have the exact opposite being proclaimed. Did you catch? Instead of this this horrible, vile, wicked criminal saying, look at how awful he is. That's what the Romans would say. Now you have the apostles saying, that guy on the cross is our king. He's our savior. He's our God. Can you imagine how scandalous this was? (laughs) Imagine just how offensive this was to many in their own day. The Jewish teacher from Nazareth who had stirred up so much controversy who was also crucified by the way if you go back he was crucified for blasphemy so he's a known blasphemer by many around him he is according to the apostles the church's lord and savior This is the striking message when Peter says in Acts chapter 2 that this Jesus of Nazareth, he's both Lord and Messiah. He's not just saying that as we hear it because we know about Jesus. It's the offense of the cross that undergirds that. You can imagine the people in that day being scandalized by the idea. Are you you sure you have the right guy? He he was crucified. That's reserved for really bad guys. (laughs) It was a scandalous teaching, a foolish teaching. It reminds us of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23. That Well, let me just read it. Yeah, you don't have to turn there. You can write it down. But 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23. 
Well, I'll read verse uh, 22. Well, you can turn there if you want. Let's just turn there. <laughs> First Corinthians chapter 1 is a great example of just exactly what we're getting at in terms of this juxtaposition between death and exaltation. And right in the middle of that, we have the cross. And here, Paul says, well, let's back up to yeah, verse 22. Paul says, for the Jews require a sign. And the Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Unto the Jews a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks foolishness. But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. You have here what Paul would, I would definitely say, would be his calling card. His sort of, his main method and means and message of ministry was entirely bound up in those words, preaching, excuse me, (coughs) preaching Christ crucified. And he says here, he makes it very uh, well known that this Christ who was crucified, he knows it's an offensive message. He knows that it sounds foolish. He knows that it sounds scandalous. Let me read you a passage just to get more in your mind's eye uh, exactly what I'm trying to get at here. This comes from a sermon by G. Campbell Morgan, the great preacher uh, from several uh, decades ago. G. Campbell Morgan writing uh, particularly about this exact thing, the foolishness of the cross, has this to say. Quote, In the early days... Of Christianity, a stigma was attached to the followers of the Nazarene, particularly on the account of the cross. It was something so utterly and absolutely unheard of that religion should be centered in a cross. And whether to the Jew or the Roman or the Greek, the cross was a stumbling block, a scandal and an offense, something utterly and absolutely objectionable. Now, uh, I'll, I'll just stop there and we'll continue reading in a minute, minute. Because have you ever thought about why? And if you do research, I'm sure that you could come up with it. But uh, we're, we're reading here. Paul says the cross, death via cross is a stumbling block. It sounds foolish. And have you ever thought about why that was so? For the Jews and the Greeks and the Romans in this particular day, why was that so? Well, I like how G. Kimball Morgan answers that. He brings up exactly why this, this idea of a savior and king being crucified was so offensive. Notice, this is what Morgan says, quote, To the Jew, the cross meant disgrace, for it had been associated with the breaking of law and its penalty. To the Roman, the cross was an indication of defeat. And there was no crime in Rome equal to the crime of defeat. To win was everything. To lose was disgrace. And the proud patrician of Rome, looking upon Jesus crucified, held him in supreme contempt because he was beaten. And to the Greek, the cross was the utterest degradation. To the Greek who stood for the perfecting of individualism for the ideal man in form and feature and fashion for every man aimed at perfection for a man to be nailed to a cross and to be mauled in his death was disgusting. So to preach the cross to the Jew was to preach the instrument with which the lawbreaker was punished. 
To preach the cross to the Roman was to preach to a victorious people, the instrument of defeat. And to preach the cross to the Greek was to preach to people who were seeking for perfect individual culture, the most disagreeable and disgusting method of death and failure. A stigma was attached to the religion of Jesus because at at its very heart and center stood this cross. (laughs) You see now why those that Paul would be preaching to would be rightly uh, sort of uh, get a little bit offended by the things he's talking about. This Jesus of Nazareth was crucified. And yet that guy, we preach him. We preach him as our savior precisely because we know that he defeated death. I think such is why if you read the book of Acts. You have all those early governors of Rome and the various other subsidies of those of that kingdom sort of reprimanding all the apostles. Because they're, again, get in your mind's eye the message that they're spreading. They're spreading this, quote, rumor. They're, they're, they're rousing everyone up into this religious fervor of this traitor of Rome and of Judaism has now been crucified as a criminal and yet he's been resurrected from the dead. It's a very scandalous message. They can't have that type of thing going on. You can preach. We don't mind you exercising your religion, but just not about that guy. They can't have this traitor being venerated and lofted as a savior. And yet, what does Paul everywhere say? This is my message and you can like it. You can just deal with it. We preach Christ crucified. This is what we aim at. So back to Philippians. Again, catch that what has just been suggested by Paul. (coughs) Excuse me. He, Jesus, God in the flesh, became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, because of that, because of this obedience unto death, notice, wherefore God also hath highly exalted him. It is because of the cross That Christ has now been exalted by the Father is because of his obedient death that he is now raised to sit with the Heavenly Father on high, as it says elsewhere in Ephesians. You see, here we have it's one thing to preach the scandal of the cross, as we've been sort of articulating, it's quite another thing to preach the scandal of a God exalted, crucified Savior. And that's exactly what Paul is doing. He's saying this one who became your death is none other than God himself. And if that weren't enough, this God defeated death and is now raised on high and is sitting in heaven ruling and reigning for us. Yes, this we know is the gospel. To these ears, it sounds nothing much more offensive than that. That that horrible, uh, that reprehensible instrument of execution, yes, that we cling to as a church, is an instrument of death. And yet we cling to it precisely as the instrument and good news of our hope in life. I think this is an amazing fact that now, too, the cross has been exalted. The cross has been venerated and exalted on high. And it assures us of one thing which I love. The fact that this death is now exalted. 
by God assures us that the cross worked. If, if, if everything that, that we were preaching here in the church stopped at the death of the cross, there wouldn't be much hope in that. There wouldn't be much good news there. It would just be another guy who claimed he was God dying. And again, that's not our message. It's not just the cross or just the resurrection. It's cross and resurrection. It's life and death. Jesus' passion and resurrection sort of embody exactly in all that we need to preach and proclaim. And here you have Paul doing the same thing in a few short words. That we have death and we have exaltation. And we know that this is the, the exaltation of the, this death assures us that that death worked. It paid for sin. It, it paid the penalty that we owed. This is the ground of our faith. Good Friday worked. And it's good because of Easter Sunday. And you have Paul saying the same thing. Good Friday was good because we have Easter Sunday and we have, yes, eventually Ascension Sunday where Jesus ascends on high to his heavenly father. Therefore, all of this is true. All of this is good and right and we are, we are more than bound and determined to get this message out because we know it is true. If it's just a rumor, they're spending their lives on a very shaky rumor. But of course, we know that that's not true. The apostles weren't spending their lives on this, this, this very harebrained, hokey story. They were giving their lives for the fact. We know this is true. And that means all these other things are true too. We know that death could not hold our Savior down. And he rose. And so it is that the church stands firm and steadfast on the truth of this message. So not with scandal, or notwithstanding the scandal that's associated with this name, that's associated with this death, Paul says here in verse 9, Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. In, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's precisely this crucified Lord that is, yes, now exalted on high with the Father, but it also is exercising authority over all things. And if you want to just really, uh, this, I love how Paul does this. He, he doesn't just give you a partial thing for what he's talking about. He wants to go above and beyond. So you, so you can be sure that it's not just, he, okay, he has authority over this, but not over that. Paul says everything. Things in the earth, things in heaven, and things under the earth. It's sort of like at the end of Romans chapter 8 where he says, this can't separate you, and this can't separate you, and this can't separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. <laughs> he's, he's being repetitive to get in your mind's eye that there's nothing that can separate you. The same thing here, he's getting into your mind's eye. There's nothing over which Christ doesn't hold authority in his sight. All of these things will one day fall to their knees, prostrate, sprawled out in front of him. 
that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess. This is who our Savior is. Our Savior is this Jesus. Again, I love that he ties this exaltation to that name. Again, there were, might have been some who were still living at this day and age who were contemporary with Jesus. They knew Jesus back in the day. Jesus the carpenter. Jesus Joseph's son. And here Paul's saying, that Jesus is your savior and king. That Jesus is the Lord and Messiah of all things. He's the king of glory. The Lord of all lords. The Lord of everything visible and invisible. Living and dead. And there will be no one in eternity who does not know that he is Lord. Did you? I, I think this is a really interesting fact. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is Lord. This is not just those who believe in Jesus as their Savior from their sins. This is just everyone, period. Everyone. There won't be anyone in eternity that will not uh, be still be confused as to who is the ruler and reigner over their lives. It's this Jesus Christ. This crucified one. This one who was had hands pierced with nails and his side gashed by a spear is now, yes, the exalted Jesus, the king in majesty and splendor and glory. Again, this is sort of a hard message to accept sometimes. Perhaps not for us who are so churched. <laughs> but again, I want to just read a quick passage to get in your mind's eye again just how scandalous this idea was. Jesus dying, cru- being crucified, uh, being buried, uh, and then, yes, resurrected and ascended on high, and he's enthroned as king. One historian says it this way. Divinity, quote, was for the very greatest of the great. It was for victors and heroes and kings. Its measure was the power to torture one's enemies, not to suffer it itself. To nail them to the rocks of a mountain or to turn them into spiders or blind and crucify them after conquering the world. That a man who had himself been crucified might be hailed as a god could not help but be seen by a people everywhere across the Roman world as scandalous, obscene, and grotesque. So you see here, for the Jews, not merely blasphemy, it was madness, (laughs) This is where we get into the idea uh, back in Acts chapter 17. That this message that the apostles were about preaching Jesus. It was turning the world upside down. It's a message of madness. It's a message uh, that doesn't uh, sort of jive with mankind's philosophy. This crucified and resurrected one is also the ascended one. The enthroned one. I think this is. Man's philosophy even still, even now, we, we lionize life and glory and success. 
And we assume that those who have the most glory and the most success are those who are strongest and mightiest and who have the most power. And as they exercise that, as they exert that on others, they are demonstrating that, yes, they indeed have uh, the most might and power and glory and strength. And so here again, the cross is the opposite of all that. The cross sort of evades the logic of man and turns it upside down. Because it appears so weak. It appears so shameful. It appears so inglorious. So we should avoid the cross. That's why those who don't believe in Jesus are often scandalized by this message. It's actually reminiscent to me of what Peter says in Mark chapter 8. Remember in Mark 8? Jesus has just finished sort of first making it very expressive. Hey, I'm going to be killed. And what does Peter say? May it not be so. Well, let me just read it. I always do that. I always try and quote it and I can't quote it. Mark chapter 8 verse 31. It says, And Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. He's literally preaching the gospel to them as we know it. To them, it was a scandal and an offense and a stumbling block. And it says, And he spake that saying openly, publicly. And Peter took him and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus had turned about and looked on his disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, Get thee behind me, Satan. For thou savest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. Peter was operating and still abiding by the logic of man. That to be exalted, we have to exert strength. We have to exert dominance. We have to exert power. That that exaltation and success and glory comes to those who are most strong. And here, what Jesus is saying runs counter to all of that. That my glory... My exaltation is precisely going to go the way of the cross. It's going to come by the path which seems most foolish. Such as where we get back to Paul in 1 Corinthians 1. That the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of men. So we have here that in contradiction to all of man's logic is this life of Jesus Christ himself. Living Dying, resurrecting, ascending. God coming down. God being made like man. God taking on man's sins. God dying man's death. God going into man's grave. And yet all of that is left behind in the grave that is also empty. So you see here the life of Jesus runs counter entirely to the logic of man. Which says exaltation comes through dominance and power. Jesus says it comes through humility and death. It comes through service. It comes through the cross. So again... We have here in this, in this particular section, in this exaltation of humility, we see humility as God's appointed method by which the world is remade. God in Christ humbles himself to the point of death. 
And this is the manner in which God best shows his love for the world. Again, think about this. God doesn't come in barging into this world, ranting and raving like a tyrant and saying, you must bow to me. He doesn't bark at us for all of the ways we've done wrong. What does God say in Jesus Christ in John chapter 3? I haven't come to condemn the world. They've done that already. I've come that they might have life eternal. This method of exaltation is so counter. It doesn't come through power. It comes through humility. And even here, Jesus is reclaiming and reconciling the world to himself by humbling himself to where we are. This is the way in which the world is remade. One preacher says it like this, that Jesus established his authority by bleeding. It's so opposite of the way that we would think. That he establishes his kingdom by being defeated. By what looks like defeat. By being openly trounced on the cross. And yet he dies and in so doing he's glorified. Precisely because he is God. His life cannot be taken away. He lays his life down and takes it back up as the king of glory. The one who holds the power over life and death. There's, I think it's. This is not in my notes, and it just came to me. I think it's Augustine. I'll give St. Augustine the credit for it. (laughs) I don't know if it's exactly him. But one ancient guy, he says basically that the cross was Jesus's, or we could say God's, mousetrap. Wherein he ensnared the devil into a trap. Because by thinking that this would be his defeat, actually he trounced over all of evil and darkness and sin. (laughs) Which is a great way to think about the way in which that instrument of the cross is resurrected, we might say, and exalted into the thing that we cling to most as his church. Because Jesus takes that thing that was meant for death and he flips the tables. He turns the tables on all of darkness and says, I have power over you. And so what does this mean for us? Well, it means that when we believe in Jesus, it puts us on the same trajectory. By which I mean, humility always precedes exaltation. <laughs> I, could, I won't take the time to do it, but there's several references we could go to where this theme is highlighted very explicitly. I'll just take you to one. Notice Luke chapter 18, verse 14. These are Jesus' words coming on the heels of the parable of the Pharisee and the publican. And notice what he says. Luke 18, 14, I tell you this man, meaning the, the publican, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. You can find the same theme reiterated in Matthew chapter 18, verse 4. And Matthew chapter 23, verse 12. And Luke chapter 14, verse 11. And James chapter 4, verse 10. And 1 Peter 5. Over and over and over again, we have it highlighted here that humility precedes exaltation. Death precedes resurrection. This is what is embodied in Jesus. And we see it too. That for however much we try to grasp for ourselves, 
We are thwarting the method of faith, if you will. (laughs) Because our life is bound to this one who stooped. Who stooped in order to reign supreme. And whose meekness was proven as the most mightiest thing in the world. And the same with us. That we too are given all of this good news that we might humble ourselves before this Jesus, the Lord, uh, our Lord, and our Messiah. That we too ought to be defined by lives of humility, that look on the things of others before the things of ourselves. 